Hello, and once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm Useless Hungry Goblin, Jackson Heflin. Also your co-host, I guess. Thank you for joining us for episode three of our prep school bracket. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about 2000's Finding Forrester, as well as 2008's Wild Child. What very different movies. Like, the two ends of the prep spectrum, I think. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, again, another good example of Oscar bait film and teen comedy. Well, actually, sorry, I lied. These are the reasonable ends of the prep spectrum. We haven't gotten to O versus Sky High yet. Those are <laughs> those are the, the utter edges of the known universe of the prep spectrum. So, why don't we go ahead and start off with Finding Forrester. Jamal Wallace is, by outside appearances, an average teenage boy in the Bronx. Bonies dare to enter the home of local recluse and accidentally leaves his backpack behind, things begin to change. The Herman later returns his bag, dropping it out of his apartment window, and Jamal discovers he's edited his writing, notebooks he's hidden from everyone as to not stand out. While his test scores draw attention from his teachers and private school recruiters, Jamal returns to the secretive man and asks him to look at more of his writing. As Jamal begins at his new private school, Mailer Callow, he discovers the hermit's identity, William Forrester, a mid-century author who published a single widely acclaimed novel and withdrew from the public eye. William agrees to help Jamal as long as he keeps the secret. With William's mentorship, Jamal's writing improves, but it causes his professor, Robert Crawford, to suspect plagiarism. Meanwhile, Jamal and William are developing a rapport, Jamal learning more about William's family and eventually why he became a recluse. As Crawford pressures Jamal more and more, Jamal takes his best work, a piece adapted from some of William's writing, and submits it for a writing contest. Unfortunately, the piece it was adapted from was published before, giving Crawford proof of plagiarism, unless Jamal can prove he had permission from the original author. Jamal refuses to reveal William or apologize and risks expulsion. Jamal pleads with William for help, but he refuses. And after a loss at the state basketball championships, Jamal spends all night writing an essay and addresses it to William. His brother finds it and delivers it as he sleeps. Later that day, as Jamal attends the reading for the writing competition, William arrives, causing a commotion. William gets permission to read an essay that receives much applause. After he's praised by Crawford for the piece, William reveals the friendship between him and Jamal, the permission he gave Jamal to use his work, and the piece he just read, written not by himself, but by Jamal. Crawford is dumbfounded and stammers that this won't change Jamal's situation, but the board overrules him. Later, William thanks Jamal for his friendship and decides to travel back to Scotland. Months later, Jamal is visited by a lawyer executing William's will, giving Jamal the keys to William's apartment and a package containing a manuscript for William's second novel, asking Jamal to write the foreword. Uh, if you're wondering, yes, this is a very oscar Brady movie. So this film is by Gus Van Sant. He, just a few years prior to this, directed Good Will Hunting, and there are a lot of similarities between those two films. When Matt Damon showed up, I straight up thought this was going to be in like the Good Will Hunting cinematic universe. Yeah, I kind of wish that was a thing. Right, like, <laughs> that would have actually made this like a whole star better for me if it was just in this really weird shared universe that nobody asked for. Matt Damon plays the lawyer. It's kind of just a, you know, yeah. a, ah, that guy kind of moment. Yeah. The cast is weird. So we have... We have Sean Connery playing the titular Forrester. We have Rob Brown, who hasn't done a whole lot of like well-known work. He's had parts here and there. But also in the cast, we have Anna Packin, who you may recognize as 
Rogue from the X-Men films or as Suki from True Blood. I believe Prince. Suki. And Busta Rhymes as uh, Jamal's brother, Terry. So this film has Sean Connery, Matt Damon, Anna Packin, and Busta Rhymes in it. This is like a fulcrum for all your six degrees of separation games that you didn't know you needed. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And overall, the plot is pretty much exactly what you expect. It's very Oscar Beatty. It, I mean, I don't want to knock it too much for that because there is this artistry shown, but the plot is pretty bare bones and it's just not fun most of the time. We described a lot of the scenes, especially in the first act, as being very utilitarian. Yeah, they're kind of just getting us to where the film wants to go. And once it actually gets to the meat of the film, the, this relationship between William Forrester and Jamal, it's actually really great. Just having those two actors bounce off of each other, it's actually really compelling. Yeah, they're fun. They have an unusual dynamic. A lot of times, Forrester will say a kind of generic, problematic thing about English teacher bullshit stuff, and Jamal will counter him. And I'm like, yes, thank you. I'm glad that... You're not just taking it. Yeah, like there's actually this perfect example of that is Jamal using a preposition to begin a sentence and they have a like argument about it. And what is the risk? Well, the risk is doing it too much. It's a distraction and it could give you a piece of run on feeling. But for the most part, the rule on using and or but at the start of a sentence is still pretty shaky, even though it's still taught in too many schools by too many professors. Some of the best writers have been ignoring that rule for years, including you. That's a decent point to jump off from. That conversation is great. It shows Jamal's quick-wittedness, intelligence, and understanding of the complexity of writing and, uh, and literature, which is really good, and I like that a lot. But a lot of the movie has this kind of memorizing books equals being good at English, which I think is an unhealthy attitude and well memorization is great people who recite poetry prose whatever are really cool just knowing authors isn't a replacement for actual writing skill and i feel like the movie didn't always fully understand what it takes to be a writer and it can kind of perpetuate i'm gonna say damaging stereotypes or unhealthy attitudes it's not it doesn't really matter as much as other things in this movie do but that's the thing i can complain about from a place of authority they said with their english degree yeah, being well-read is not a replacement for having your own opinions. Especially since a lot of the authors being quoted are the, the classics. You're, you're old, dead white guys. Exactly. Touching on like some of the more important problematic stuff in the film, I think that's kind of where this film gets bogged down. Because Jamal, outside of when he gets to like play off Forrester, he doesn't get to be just a kid. He has to be this avatar for blackness and for the film to comment on all of the problems that black people face in the world. And yeah, they definitely do, but it's not like this film is directly trying to fix any of that, considering how very, very white the production team is. Mm -hmm. While it isn't the worst in terms of white saviorness, it definitely has a, like, white people patting themselves on the back for knowing race things. Yeah, thing. like... This film gives off this huge make-white-people-feel-good-about-understanding-racism energy. Mm -hmm. As we were watching, I was uh, looking at the Wikipedia page for the film, and at the bottom in the C also is a perfect encapsulation of this, because the C also is just white savior <laughs> narratives in film, and then... Yes! 
Yes! You're the man now, dog. Yep. That's a, that's a good six-word summary for the film. And I don't want to dig too deep into it, because, I mean, it's not like we're coming from a place of authority on that either. But the point of the movie where it stops being characters interacting and starts being, WE ARE TALKING ABOUT RACE! Make it more exhausting than interesting. A lot of that stuff just feels very inauthentic. And while it might have been innovative or whatever at the time, right now it just kind of feels like, yes, we... I'll agree on that. Especially since we are seeing a uh, boom in black cinema. Yes. I was actually able to find some uh, black people actually talking about this. Good. So this was reposted on The Root, but it was originally from Shadow League, and it was just Shadow League staff is the author as opposed to any individual. But it's uh, celebrating 15 years of Finding Forrester, so it was published in 2016. And there are a few interesting things. Part of it is the writer also went through a similar experience to Jamal of going through like prestigious New York private school as a black person. And so they felt that that experience was relatively accurate. There's also something that I definitely didn't catch until this article brought it up. But at one point, Jamal is told right before the state championship game. We forget about the whole thing. We set you up next year with an academic schedule that's less demanding. You mean Crawford wanted that? Crawford wants what's best for you and for the school. So then what am I supposed to do? You hold up a championship trophy at the end of this tournament. You make that happen. I'll make the rest of it happen. And Jamal is given a couple of free throws at the very end of the game because of a foul and he misses both of them and it's incredibly ambiguous as to whether he misses them on purpose or not and the author of this piece likens that to some of the nine violent protests that MLK did. Sure I'll accept it yeah. Yeah that's actually really interesting idea. There's a lot of evidence that he chose to miss them on purpose there's an entire scene earlier in the film where he and his rival on the team are forced to continuously practice free throws until one of them misses, and they both make 50 in a row. Mm-hmm. The basketball scenes are the best part of this movie, weirdly enough. Yeah, everything with Jamal and Forrester bouncing off each other and the basketball scenes are both really good. I think there are a lot of really good narratives in this film, like the... Black kid at prestigious school wanting to be recognized for his academic achievements, not for his basketball skills, is a really good narrative here for that. But I think these are the wrong people to tell this narrative, and also it's not given all the time that it needs. So it doesn't yeah. get to exist as much as it could have. Yeah, like this film wants to talk about living in the Bronx, uh, living in poverty, absentee black fatherhood, just so many aspects of the black experience and it doesn't do pretty much any of them justice. So this is a weird analogy, and there's probably a better version of this. There's a movie called Justice League Dark. Basically, all the magic characters form their own Justice League to deal with stuff, and in the movie, they kind of run through all of the well-known villains from that comic just at once, and none of the villains really get to breathe. Like, we go through so many arcs so fast that they all kind of... They feel more like wacky wayside adventures than actual, like, living characters, and... I don't know what they're going to do with the sequel because they've used up all the villains already. 
That's kind of what this feels like. It's like we're doing a speedrun tour of the Black Experience TM, as opposed to, like, a nuanced exploration of any part of it. No, like, I completely agree. I think that's entirely accurate, because it definitely feels like when they pack too many villains into a superhero movie and you don't get enough time with any of them. Yeah, this is the Amazing Spider-Man 2 of Oscar Baby, uh, the Black Experience movies. Okay, so I'm done with that part now. Why are there no light bulbs in this movie? Why does no one have light bulbs? Why is no scene lit? I think the most lit scene we get is at Yankee Stadium. And that's actually a really great scene. And I think during the basketball championships, mm-hmm. but like both of those are like these huge sports stadiums where there's tons of light. Mm-hmm. There's no option but for them to be well lit. And I guess it's also the basketball scene on the roof. But so much of this takes place in these dark spaces that are very underlit or characters will be backlit or they'll be framed in a way so that the bits of light in the room are a tiny sliver behind two figures standing in front of it and it makes the whole thing just kind of feel grim and claustrophobic and dingy but not in a way that I feel like adds the narrative just in a way that seems like that was the style they chose to go because it like looks Oscar-y. Yeah, it's also unfortunate because it's very apparent that in these low light scenes the cinematographer does not have experience lighting dark skin. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times these characters just kind of get lost in the darkness. Which I think almost works on an allegorical level, but that's me giving the film some credit. It's not the film is succeeding in that. There's also the fact, like, I completely understand Forrester's apartment at first being very dark. Like, he, he lives alone. He wants his solitude and secrecy. And I kind of wish that as the film went on the interior shots in that apartment had better and better lighting to show he's opening up and that Jamal lights up his life. Klaus, you want it to Klaus. <laughs> yes, I do. I do want it to be more like Klaus. Yeah. It's kind of a petty complaint. Other films I have enjoyed have also had not a lot of lighting, but this was something that I could kind of cling to as a complaint that was fun to complain about as opposed to being like, I'm uncomfortable with the race stuff, but also I don't want to be the one to talk about the race stuff. Mm. It's less of a complaint and more of a just unusual filming style thing. There are some hard cuts in this. It's like they get to the point the scene needs to make and then everyone just declares, No more jobs! And we go to the next scene. <laughs> Sometimes it can be really good. Like there's a really fun cut where Forrester tells Jamal, The key to a woman's heart is an unexpected gift at an unexpected time. You're giving me advice on women. Unexpected gift, unexpected time. And we cut immediately to... This this is so unexpected. Great humor. But other scenes just end and there's not really a connected tissue. I'm not opposed to fast cuts when they're appropriate. One of my favorite films is Hot Fuzz and it uses them incredibly effectively. And sometimes they're used really well here. The scene you mentioned, the free throw scene where we kind of just have a jump cut, and then the coach says a new number for whatever free throw they're up to. And it's great. But yeah, all of a sudden, like, we're done now with a scene, and we're just on a completely new topic, and it's incredibly jarring. It makes me think that there was an intention behind it, but I can't always tell what that was. So if it was, then it was too dense for me. And I feel kind of bad saying this because this is a movie edited by a woman, which is somewhat uncommon. To, to have, like, women in prominent yeah. roles and things. I also appreciate her work elsewhere, too. She edited Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is one of my favorite films. Right, which is beautifully edited. So I don't know if this is Gus Van Sant's direction on that, or if there were just necessary cuts because the film was too long. 
Yeah. It, also, it is still too long. It, it has not changed its too longness. There's just less of that. And also, I don't want to cast this version on her because her name is Valdis Oster's daughter, and I don't want the ire of someone whose name it means Goddess of the Slain. Uh, honestly, I think just any variety of some softer cuts would have helped. Mm-hmm. Or even just a few more panning shots of the spaces. Mm-hmm. Another thing that kind of goes along with that, there's a number of conversations that we have in the film that we're watching from the other side of a window and we can see like the reflections of people walking by on the other side of and it's really weird and distracting and i don't know why we have that distance from these characters that we're supposed to be watching talk art (laughs) Um, i think that's the problem with a lot of this movie there's too many moments that are there for the art as opposed to for efficient storytelling and while i think that there are some things that do art for art's sake well and it's enjoyable this one doesn't keep me in that mood one of my favorite movies is Only Lovers Left Alive, which is very much art for art's sake, but it keeps the tone in the way that it needs to be for that to work. Mm-hmm. One thing I do want to praise the film for, although I notice it less and less as the film goes on, there's a lot of stealthy literary references thrown throughout. They start off in Jamal's English class at his public school talking about Poe, and then one of his friends is talking about window who what they call forester before they know his name at like he's kind of the local legend recluse and talking about this story of a girl he knew that lived in that apartment building and like this tapping that she heard and it's very reminiscent of the telltale heart mm-hmm. and i honestly wish that that was kept throughout and kind of kept that literary theme i think it worked well for the film but we got bogged down in a bunch of race stuff that was not as well done or as interesting I think there's a conversation to be had about how this movie doesn't really do anything to unpack old dead white guys in English, despite having a black protagonist. That's a conversation that needed to happen at some point, but it doesn't. It just sort of takes as read that these authors are inherently good and wonderful, mm-hmm. which some of them are. There are some lovely works by many of these authors, but the presence of their quality does not diminish that their presence uh, exists because of the absence of black authors and female authors. And uh, the systemic barriers that are in place that prevent them from publishing. Yeah, that. I will say this. I kind of like Crawford as a villain. He's very stereotypical, upper-class racist. Oh, definitely, yeah. At certain points of the film, it's just ridiculous like at the very end when everyone's clapping for jamal he's like trying to get them to calm down and like i just wrote my notes stop clapping it makes me look bad yeah i think he is more character than character in some of the ways that jamal is at times but i think if the whole movie had been more like that if it, the whole thing had this kind of pastiche comical tone that like might a have key and peel skit Sure, yeah. That could have made it work better and made all these things more palatable if we knew we were kind of meant to laugh at a lot of what's going on as opposed to, like, taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might be kind of harsh on this movie. I watched it on a Thursday, long week of work back after the holidays. It's possible that if I watched this at a different time in a different mood or whatever, I might have been having a better time. I might have been kinder to it and all that jazz. So don't not watch it because of what we're saying. If it's not like your jam, cool. But I'm, I'm sorry for being maybe harsher than it maybe deserves. I don't know. It's really frustrating because I think the premise of this film is interesting. And I, I wish we had a, like, a better version of this film. But Good Will Hunting is better. It just 
is like, you're getting a lot of the same stuff in that film and i think it's more well done it's more balanced and it's got much better cinematography than this does Mm-hmm. My second note, and kind of bouncing off of that, we kind of do have a movie that I argue is a better version of this. The Hate You Give came out last year based on a novel that was at or near the top of the New York Times bestselling list for a hundred weeks, oh. if not more. I stopped counting. Like there was a point at which we it was just understood that the New York Times bestselling list for YA books was renamed books that are almost as good as The Hate You Give by Angie <laughs> Thomas. Um, anyway, movie came out last year, year before really good and is also dealing with the complexities of code switching as a black teenager in a upper class finishing type school but is also dealing with police violence to the black communities and what it's like to live through that so maybe not like a, a jump on for the fun times kind of movie but it really should have been on this bracket and i didn't realize that it would have had a place until it was too late and we'd already started recording things so mm-hmm. sorry about that the hate you give you deserve to be here you deserve to be watched Um, I will also mention that this is the first bracket that we have constructed since after our main resource for doing so got locked behind a paywall. Oh, yeah. So we're probably going to miss stuff a lot more often just because the process for doing this is much more convoluted now. Yeah. And time consuming. And it's not as easy to double check everything. Right. Speaking of easy things, let's talk about Wild Child. Finding Forrester is a difficult film like it is a chore to digest this is like eating a brownie <laughs> this is like eating those loft house cookies that maybe don't actually t- taste all that good and you know they're not healthy but they're incredibly light and fluffy and if they're in the break room you'll go for them so wild child from 2008 is about a malibu teen named poppy moore and she takes her disrespect for her stepmom a little too far so she's packed up to a stuffy british boarding school her demeanor clashes with everyone there, and things continue to go badly for her. She grows more and more miserable. Hermes take pity on her after head girl Harriet starts bullying her, and they start to bond, agreeing to help her get expelled so she can go home. Unfortunately, none of their plans seem to work, so she tries for the most unbreakable rule, snogging the son of the headmistress. When her pursuit turns to a real romance, she also finds that she's very good at lacrosse, and takes the team to victory. Harriet, jealous of all this, Says nasty letters to all of her friends when she forgets to log out of her computer and they turn on her. Poppy, despondently flicking a lighter, accidentally starts a fire and fails to put it out, burning down the kitchen with her roommate inside. Poppy narrowly saves her, but confesses to the crime. The school convenes the honor court, a formality at this point, before the expulsion she no longer wants. Her roommates do the math, realize she couldn't have sent those emails, and do the I'm Spartacus thing to help get her out of trouble. In the process, Harriet is revealed to have actually set the fire. Poppy is absolved stays at the school, and everyone lives happily ever after. Except Harriet. Also, Poppy's mom died in a car crash, and we find out that she went to this school, and there's some emotional scenes about that. Wasn't a good way to work her into the summary. I get you. Yeah. I mean, I barely was able to work the basketball plot in mine. Yeah, or Claire. Yeah, or Claire. Yeah. Like, no shame on Anna Paquin. Anna Paquin is doing fine. <laughs> but she doesn't need to be here, and I feel bad saying like... There's, there's a I... lot of characters in that film that don't need to be there that we waste time with. But anyway, to Wild Child. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, yeah, yeah. So, Wild Child is very much bubblegum pop kind of movie. It's also kind of a Footloose type thing, but it's it's Footloose starring Emma Roberts in a British boarding school. That's not a bad thing. Everyone here is fun. It's less getting everyone to have fun. It's more, A, learning to like be herself. She doesn't have to pretend to fit in here and it's also taking Harriet down a few pegs so she's not just depressing everyone around her as head girl. 
This is functionally a white savior narrative, but just, you know, an America savior narrative, saving the English from their tyrants. Oh, so it's like every World War II movie. Yes. This is functionally <laughs> a World War II movie set in a British boarding school, starring Emma Roberts. <sighs> <laughs> and Moaning Myrtle. The uh, character has a name. I didn't learn what it was. I think she's literally just credited as, as Matron. <laughs> Poor thing. And she somehow acts more like Moaning Myrtle as a living person than she did when she was just Moaning Myrtle. I think it's mostly just we get more of her here. That's true. And her role is to be like the unhappy matron the whole time. She's the filch in this one. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a British boarding school. We could just reference Harry Potter. Everyone will know they, her. they do that. And we're not like, what is this place? Hogwarts? At a time when I guess that joke is relevant. I mean, we were in the middle of the Harry Potter films at that point, which is why none of those actors are here. <laughs> which means we're kind of getting B and C list British actors for this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to like cast this person only actors. Most of them are doing a pretty good job. While there are some good moments, no one ever hits. There are only murderers in this room. Levels of <laughs> undiscovered talent or whatever, they do fine. There are a few moments that genuinely made me feel feelings more than I expected to. And Freddy, that's the headmistress's son, does far better here than he did in I'm number four. So that's something. I feel bad for him because he has one of those faces that is designed to be leading man material, but I don't know if he's ever actually been in anything that was all that leading manny. So I don't know if he ever got to really shine. Oh, he's also beastly. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Okay, never mind. He got to shine. He has made his mark on the world. And there are some like some good fun bits with him. Like when he's teaching Poppy how to drive a stick shift and he's like, have you tried... Shifting into second, and she goes, That's the car While not all the jokes in this movie land, there are quite a few that work. Moaning Myrtle at one point tells Emma Roberts that she's supposed to dress like a proper young lady, not like a window in Amsterdam, which you have to understand a lot of culture to get that joke. I'm curious what Moaning Myrtle's life is like outside of school. Also early on in the film, there's a point where one of Poppy's roommates says, you know, she's American, but with the inflection as if it's a terminal disease. <laughs> is she? Mm-hmm. American. Which, Which is basically how the English think of us. I don't And blame they're them. right. Yeah. Like, we can't say it every episode because it would just get repetitive and boring, but again, co- contact your representatives. <laughs> Tell them no war with Iran. On larger topics, there are some old computers. Uh, and it was kind of charming to see the very antiquated web browser and the slowly loading pages. There's just like quaintness to a lot of things going on at the boarding school. Like, this is 2008. They definitely didn't need those big chunky computers, but they had them anyway just to make it seem more antique because this is a British boarding school. Yeah. Like there's that bus stop that they're waiting around, go out on their shopping spree, and there's the sketchiest bus stop I've ever seen. <laughs> I grew up in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that bus stop might have been around longer than Chicago has. Oh, speaking of the bus and therefore their trip to town to go shopping at the antique store, the most happening place in town, Nick Frost is in this movie. Yes, Nick Frost is in this movie as a rather unfortunate gay stereotype. Yeah, who runs a hairdressing place and dreams of going to Fireman Island. <laughs> Firemen show up for this movie and I'm really sad they didn't like have to leave an island to get there. I really wanted this like... Island enclave of firemen who are becoming one with the waters. I want a weird crossover of the lighthouse and fire force. I'm going to try to not hold that against Nick Frost too much because I love him dearly. He has repaid for his sins in this movie by having a fight scene in Into the Badlands where he uses an octopus as a weapon. <laughs> That's all it takes for me. 
Also by publicly talking about his platonic cuddling with Simon Pegg. Also valid. We've kind of just been talking about like things that we appreciate about this movie or things that happen. It is incredibly unconsequential. It does not matter, but it does not ask much of you to experience it. Yeah. It's a very lighthearted movie. It's very easy to digest and to throw on. And honestly, you don't really need to pay much attention to follow along with the plot. I think the plot is not the strongest bit. They introduce elements like the lacrosse thing sort of out of nowhere as a montage. There's a lot of build-up to, like, the prom or whatever the big dance was. And then the social. The social, yeah. And then not all that much seems to really come of it. Yeah. They get drunk and are hung over the next day, but we also don't get to see any of that drunken debauchery. It's just, like, the dance ends and then we wake up the next morning and they're getting chewed up by the headmistress. With no real consequences. That's fine, but I think the pacing is a little bit rough. It doesn't quite feel episodic in the way that it could if it wanted to just be kind of, like, light, fluffy moments in a year of teen yeah, it really felt like, oh, we need to hit all of the cliches of American high school movies, but things are different at this British boarding school, and they were at a loss, but they still shoved everything in anyway. Speaking of hitting all the cliches, though, there isn't really a big kiss at the end. I appreciate that the movie's focus is more on Emma Roberts and her friendships with her roommates than the whole thing with... Freddy. Jeremy, Tom, Philip, number four... <laughs> Technically correct. The best kind of correct. <laughs> I mean, he is there at the end as all of her friends are like coming to visit her in Malibu. Yeah. But the final shot is all of her and her friends jumping off of her infinity pool into like the ocean below. Yeah. He also gets a nasty letter from Harriet's, but we don't really have like a scene where they resolve that point. I mean, maybe there's like a cut scene or whatever. Who knows? I didn't really mention it in my summary, but part of the movie is Poppy having hashtag fake, hashtag shallow friends back in Malibu and eventually realizing that they're no good and are mean and all that jazz, finding real friendship, which is, it's pleasant. Mm -hmm. It is a charming narrative. It's definitely playing into some shitty sexist stereotypes about teenage girls and all that jazz, mm -hmm. but I can still appreciate a narrative about girls finding friendship anyway. Mm-hmm. And we get a little bit of that, like, that mean girlness with Ruby and with Harriet, but in two, like, very different ways. Honestly, Harriet's a piece of work. Mm -hmm. She has an indentured servant and one of the underclassmen. <laughs> to be fair, her dad is Boris Johnson, so that doesn't help anything. And then her, like, her crab and goyle. One of the two flunkies mentioned to Harriet that Freddie said you look just like Kira Knightley in uh, Pride and Prejudice. And for the social, it's like a dress-up thing. So she, of course, tries to recreate Kira Knightley as Lizzie. But she convinces her crab and goyle to dress up as Mr. Darcy, <laughs> complete with wigs. It's weird, but they do take the wigs off and they look excellent in that very masculine British formal wear. Yeah, it's weird, but also Darcy is supposed to be the love interest, so there's a lot of weird Freudian stuff happening there. I'm honestly surprised there wasn't like any homoerotic subplots going on with this all-female boarding school. Yeah, usually that's the point of same-gender boarding schools. Homoerotic subplots that resolve into not that. There wasn't even any cheap jokes on it. The only, like, cheap gay jokes we got were with Nick Frost. Right, who, who is actually a gay. Or, I mean, well, the character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm not mad that there weren't more cheap gay jokes, so... Yeah, yeah, it just... Like, this is 2008. The marriage equality debate was still raging. Yeah. Well, Harriet's... A jerk. I'm, I have mad respect for her, like, cosplay skills because she only has whatever's within, like, a bus ride from the moors of Kent or whatever, or wherever they are. 
And she still creates like a almost note for note recreation of the outfits from Pride and Prejudice. So good job. Like she goes beyond her. Like she probably needs professional help. She has like a Helga Pataki-esque shrine to Freddy in her room. Ah, yes, I forgot about that. But while we're on Harriet, let's talk about how the twist actually got us. Yeah, I was really impressed. Did not see that coming. To reiterate in case we skipped over too much, Poppy's playing with a lighter, accidentally starts a fire, puts it out, and then goes to hide in her room and pretends nothing happened, and then looks at the window to see the building burning down. Then we go through the court and stuff, and Harriet mentions, She walked in there, lighter at the ready, and tried to burn the place down. Lighter? Everyone realizes, wait, no one mentioned the lighter. At no point has anybody told us how that fire was started. And... It couldn't have been found in the wreckage because Freddy found it and specifically brought it to Poppy. And that's kind of when everybody turns in Harriet like, <gasps> it genuinely surprised me. It was the visceral excitement you get from like, no, I am your father. But it's Luke, I am your arson. <laughs> Yeah, like, I thought they were going to pull something out of their ass to prevent Proppy from being expelled, but no. The twist is completely believable as soon as it's revealed, but I didn't have enough information to piece it together beforehand. Yeah. It worked surprisingly well, and both of us were just like, oh, wow, this is much more interesting. And it doesn't invalidate any of Poppy's character development because she does confess for what she thought was a crime that she committed. She genuinely went through all those emotions, and that's really cool. It was a definite filmmaking that doesn't really fit the rest of the film and tells me that the creators have that talent in them and maybe needed another draft to like really bring that all out. Yeah. But I still appreciate them like making it work yeah. overall. Honestly, we don't really get a whole lot of movies like this anymore, like mid-tier budget film. Yeah. Or if we do, we don't really see them because they go straight to Netflix and you don't know that they're there. Mm-hmm. Which is a pity because often there's like fun stuff in there, and that means that lesser-known actors aren't getting discovered as much. Uh, like To a certain extent, I think Netflix is probably better for them. A, I don't think releasing straight to Netflix has the same stigma as releasing direct-to-video did back in the 90s and 2000s. And I also feel like with a theatrical release, you have to specifically advertise and get people in within a specific window. If it's coming out straight to Netflix, it's probably going to be there for a few years, depending on distribution licenses and whatnot which means you've got a longer time to build up hype to it. That's true, but also they can't point to box office numbers as an easy indicator of success, which can make it harder to quantify a film's success with the market beyond just the buzz. Yes, which can then hamper future opportunities. Yeah, fair enough. So there are pros and cons. Yeah, for sure. But also, I mean, being on Netflix means there are less limitations. You can kind of just make whatever, which Mm -hmm. is helpful. Also, Netflix is hungry for content, so... yeah. And doesn't always manage it well. Give us more than three seasons, please. Stop canceling things. I think we've probably said enough about uh, Finding Forrester and Wild Child, so let's get into our uh, end segments. Who do we think is most goth, most jock, most prep, and most nerd? I think Kiki definitely wins for most nerd. Sure, yeah, I'll take it, yeah. Yeah, she's the one who like does all the math on the email timing and whatnot, and specifically figures out who sent them by going into the computer code. She's the one who's laying out the plan. Like, these are all the steps of what we need to accomplish. I'll go to her. Yeah, that's fair. How about most goth? I will point out that Claire from Finding Forrester kills anyone she touches and therefore can never be loved. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Listen, 
Emma Paquin was holding my hand through this movie, being like, it's okay, it's okay. I mean, part of me wants to give it to Forrester, but we've already established it has to be like a student. For sure. Who's that guy who was telling the, the Edgar Allan Poe story at the start of the movie? Ghost stories are pretty goth. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think his name's... God damn it. I think his name's Flip. Sure. So we've got Prep and Jock. Hmm. Got a lot of jocks. Uh, I definitely think we have to go with Jamal's rival on the basketball team. I don't remember his name, unfortunately. Yeah, but I know who you mean. I definitely think he's the most jock. Yeah. He is very specifically angry that Jamal might steal his thunder on this team sport. Right. That is his whole role. <laughs> he never develops beyond that, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, it kind of feels like there's only one token black kid on this t- team, and it's me! That was a really weird choice. Yeah. Um, and I want him to win something so he can win most jock. <laughs> Who is most prep? I think we have to go with Harriet. I think so, yeah. I think when... A gift. One for you and one for Freddy. Oh, thank you. I shot them myself. Oh, I don't doubt that you did. That, yeah. I was going to say, when possible Pulitzer Prize winner uh, Raven Darkness Dementia uh, Ebony Way, or whatever her name is, was writing about goths and preps, she was talking about Harriet as the preps. Like, that's who she was envisioning. I would also put in an argument that Poppy starts out the film as being more of a prep, just if only because she has kind of the attitude. Yeah, she's definitely a West Coast prep. Yeah. Which is distinctly different from an East Coast prep. Whereas Harriet is like more of a like... Old world prep. I was going to say beachy head coast prep, but that works too. (laughs) I love all these like distinctions that we're making as we're going through (laughs) these alignment charts. We've also decided to add... Another end segment, continuing Maya Franklin's Sherlock conspiracy from previous episode. We don't know what it means, but it's here. We're doing it. So Poppy's father in Wild Child is Aiden Quinn, who plays Detective Lestrade on Elementary. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Bill Forrester is played by Sean Connery, whose last role uh, involved him fighting Moriarty. They also do specifically mention... Sherlock Holmes in Finding Forrester, uh, Claire has to study for a test, and one of the questions is, who introduced Holmes and Watson? That's the end of A Study in Red String. Thank you for joining us. It might not be a hard guess for this one. What film do you think is going to go on to continue to be tangled up in this? (laughs) Part of me feels like Finding Forrester is more well-made, and had you been in a better mood, it would not have done as poorly, but... There are significant problems with that film, and I didn't feel that way about Wild Child. Wild Child did start off pretty rough, but after we like got into the actual plot of, oh yeah, my friends are going to help me get expelled, which is an interesting shakeup from like your typical teen movie, I really just fell into the swing of things, and it was fun, and it was enjoyable, and I would prefer to watch that again. Yeah. I can watch Wild Child. I think if it were not on this bracket, I wouldn't go seek it out again anytime soon. But I would actively try to avoid finding Forrester. I would go back to school. <laughs> I would actually like do my reading. <laughs> I would shake hands with Claire and have her steal my life force rather than watch Finding Forrester again. Not everything is a cinematic universe, Jackson. <laughs> That's true. Matt Damon proved that. <laughs> Anyway, what do we have coming up next week? I never know. (laughs) It's true. Uh, So coming up next week, we have Cruel Intentions versus St. Trinian's, which is another British all-girls school movie. 
Oh, I'm so excited for Cruel Intentions. What a delightful trash fire of a movie. Until then, if you want to make sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes up, you can make sure to follow us on your podcasting app of choice uh, or on social media via Facebook and Twitter. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.